that we have uh, this morning, uh, there really are three major events that are uh, captured in this one chapter. And I've kind of entitled it a, a contrast, a contrast between kings and kingdoms. Remembering that the book of Matthew is about what? It's about the kingdom of heaven. It's about the king. It presents Jesus Christ as king, as Lord, king of kings. King of the Jews, yes, but king of kings, lord of lords. And it starts out with his genealogy and, and many other things. We hear his teaching. We, we see him. And it's presenting to him, uh, uh, presenting him to us as king. And, of course, the kingdom, as we've just discussed in chapter 13 at some length with the seven parables. And so we expect that theme to continue through the Gospel of Matthew, and indeed it does. And it's interesting because if you, at first blush, when you read chapter 14, and uh, you, it, it may seem to you uh, that it is an incongruous or uh, an unusual assortment of these three things. And you wonder why they put them all in the same chapter. Because it begins, begins with a murder. And then it goes on to a couple of miracles that are well known. A murder and then miracles. It does seem kind of disjointed, doesn't it? But when we remember the context, the overall context of the Gospel of Matthew, uh, it makes more sense. Here having left the seven parables of the kingdom. And you remember in those parables, one of the things that was taught to us by the Lord Jesus is that, uh, that uh, the kingdom of heaven is going to contain good and the bad. In a huge net, you remember, uh, going to gather up the good and the bad. Uh, Jesus taught that uh, some would try to take the kingdom by force. And so some of these teachings... Uh, have a bearing on what we read here as we begin this morning. But this contrast between kings and kingdoms, the kingdoms of this world as represented in Herod, Antipas, in our text. He reigned in, uh, in, in uh, Judea, Galilee, Jerusalem, uh, most of the entire life of the Lord Jesus as he walked in a body of flesh on this earth. He was the primary one. His father was before him, uh, Herod the Great. But it is this Herod that represents the kingdoms of this earth, I believe, in this chapter. And so he's part of the contrast. And what we read about him has been chosen by the Holy Spirit of God as emblematic, as teaching us something very critical by way of contrast of the kingdoms of this earth with the kingdom of of heaven, the kingdom of God. And we're going to read the text, of course, here momentarily. And so the contrast, the kingdoms of this world represented in our text by Herod, and the kingdom of heaven represented by none other than our Lord Jesus Christ. And so these two then come into uh, contrast in this chapter, chapter 14. As we continue to introduce our uh, study of this chapter, uh, we can share with you that the chapter is easily divided into three distinct parts. Verses 1 through 14 that we'll be considering this morning, I doubt that we'll get past that. 
but that deals with the murder of John the Baptist, a very uh, disturbing account to read. And one wonders why the Holy Spirit gave us some of the details that uh, are included here, but it bears, I think, very much, as you'll see as we develop the message this morning, on this contrast between the kingdoms of this earth as represented by Herod and the kingdom of heaven. And so the murder of John the Baptist, verses 1 through 14, the second major event in the chapter is the feeding of the 5,000, something all of you are undoubtedly familiar with to some degree, uh, a very preachable text. I enjoy preaching anytime or teaching from that text, and will this pass through undoubtedly as well. And then the third is verses 22 through 36, and that deals with Jesus and then Peter, too, walking on the troubled waters, uh, also something you're very familiar with. And so now you can see that we presented those three main headings or uh, the th three main things that are being dealt with in the chapter, how perhaps at first blush they seem to be a little bit uh, disconnected, uh, murder and miracles. Uh, a wicked king representing the gods of this world, the god of this world, and uh, the kingdoms of this world, and the miracles of the Lord Jesus. And so, but we want to put them together. We want to consider them as one unity and see if we can extract uh, from that contrast some important application. And so that's where we begin. Let us begin by reading. Uh, I'm not going to read the entire. Uh, I'm not going to read the entire text, the entire chapter, rather. I'll read uh, when we get started, verses 1 through 14. But this seemingly odd assortment of events within one chapter, as I've mentioned already, is designed to set forth a powerful contrast between the kings and kingdoms of this earth and the king of kings and his kingdom, the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, as revealed in the interests, the motivations, and decision-making displayed in Herod as opposed to those of Jesus. And a, a marked contrast, indeed, it is when we lay it out in this way and make a, a, a comparison. For example, let me just give you a taste of that contrast in the word commanded. We find in uh, verse 9 and 10, if you'll glance there, verses 9 and 10, uh, Herod makes a command. And it says that he commanded the head, in verse 9, he commanded that the head of John the Baptist be given to the young woman. That was his command. And he sent, as part of that command in verse 10, and beheaded John in the prison. That was a command issued by the king of one of the kingdoms of this earth. A little further on, we read that Jesus gives a command, and how very different that is in verse 19, having to do with the feeding of 5,000. Here's another command, but notice how very different and what a contrast this makes as we see the king of kings, the Lord of glory, giving a command of a very different sort. In verse 19, he commanded the multitude to sit down on the grass and took the five loaves and the two fishes and looking up to heaven, he blessed and brake and gave the loaves to his disciples 
and the disciples to the multitude. And so we have the king of kings giving a command, but the command was so very different, wasn't it? That this multitude of people would be seat themselves comfortably in the grass as he prepared to perform a miracle for their benefit. Having compassion on their situation and circumstances, he was there to meet the need. And so that's the kind of thing I'm talking about. We have here a tremendous uh, contrast between the kingdoms of this world the motives, the decision-making processes, the interests with that of the kingdom of heaven. So it fits very nicely, actually, into the whole of the Gospel of Matthew and its primary purpose. And so let's begin with uh, the first segment, which is the first 11 verses, first 12 verses, and, uh, and then begin after praying to preach. Matthew chapter 14, at that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard of the fame of Jesus and said unto his servants, this is John the Baptist. He is risen from the dead, and therefore mighty works do show forth themselves in him. For Herod had laid hold on John and bound him, and that was three or four years earlier, by the way and put him in prison for Herodias' sake. Oh, my. His brother Philip's wife. For John said unto him, that's John the Baptist, for John said unto him, it is not lawful for thee to have her. And when he would have put him to death, he feared the multitude because they counted him as a prophet. But when Herod's birthday was kept, the daughter of Herodias danced before them and pleased Herod, whereupon he promised with an oath to give her whatsoever she would ask. And she, being before instructed of her mother, said, give me here John Baptist's head in a charger. And the king was sorry. Nevertheless, for the oath's sake, and them which sat with him at meat, he commanded it to be given her. And he sent and beheaded John in the prison, and his head was brought in a charger, and given to the damsel, and she brought it to her mother. And his disciples came and took up the body and buried it and went and told Jesus. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we bow before you with a, a heart made heavy by the reading of the word of God in this account. as we contemplate the motives for the decision to remove the head of the man that you yourself sent to baptize, sent as prophesied hundreds of years before he came, that he would be a voice crying out in the wilderness, 
to prepare a way for the Son of God, the Messiah. Oh my, what a testament, what a testimony of this world and its kings and kingdoms as laid forth in this gospel. Dear Father, help us to preach from this text today in the power of the Holy Spirit. We pray that you'd not leave us alone here to beat the air, but rather that you would empower us with your spirit that we might proclaim the glorious truth of your word to your glory and to the magnification of the Lord of glory, our Savior Jesus Christ. We pray, Father, that you'd open our hearts. We think about Mark's Sunday School lesson on the Holy Spirit this morning. And again, being made aware that all is vain unless the Spirit of the Holy One comes down. We look to thee to open our hearts, dear Lord, to open ears, to open our minds, to soften our wills, to make ready our beings to receive the good word of the Lord. Father, enable us to preach your word. May Christ be magnified here in this place today through the preaching of your word. May all of our hearts be made better by the hearing of the word of God. Thou dost know our need. Thou dost know our condition, dear Lord. Speak to us, we pray, through this text. May good be accomplished. We pray for those in need. The list is always long. We hold them up today. We think about little Micah now, sick with a fever. So many have been afflicted, first one and then another, but we thank you for raising them all up. None have died, none have even been hospitalized. We thank you, dear Lord, for that blessing, and we pray that it might continue by your mercy. Speak to us now. May we hear the sound of your voice. May we sense the presence of our Savior in our midst. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Let me give to you just a little bit of a biography of Herod. I don't know how much you know about him, but let me give you just a little background. Herod in the text, Herod Antipas, uh, his name, was the son of Herod the Great. Uh, Herod the Great, you may remember, we're introduced to him in the early going of Matthew, chapter 1, was the one that ordered the babies to be killed in an attempt to get uh, the Son of God, the Messiah, the one who the buzz was, was to be the King of the Jews. He felt threatened by the birth of that child and wanted to exterminate him. That was the father, the wicked king, known as Herod the Great. He was a befriender of the Jews who were under his authority in that part of the country, but he, make no mistake about it, he was a wicked, tyrannical uh, king. He was a great builder. In fact, he built for the Jews a temple, and uh, that was a political act. Do not be deceived by that. But, and so that's his background, and it's interesting that Herod the Great married a Samaritan woman. And so we have the convergence here, don't we? We have the convergence of, of uh, a political power with uh, a bit of religion, and that's not an uncommon thing, the mixing, and uh, perhaps that was a, a forethought of Herod the Great to even though the Samaritans were kind of the outcasts among the Jews, and they had uh, whacked out their religion and added all sorts of things, and it was not uh, a religion that was sanctioned by God, but it uh, had a lot of form and a lot of similarities to the pure religion of the Jews. And so it's an interesting alliance. 
But that was Herod Antipas of our text. That was his mother and his father. The Bible declares in our text that uh, he was a tetrarch. Uh, perhaps you don't know what that is. He, it simply means that uh, in simplest terms that he was, uh, he was a ruler over a portion, a portion of a country or a portion of uh, a political dominion. It wasn't the whole thing. Uh, in fact, it literally means a fourth. But in his case, it was a third. And so these things just are, again, a little background so you understand uh, some of the details historically. Uh, in this case, Herod was overseer or governor. He called himself a king, but he really wasn't. He often was referred to as a king. But uh, the particular tract of land he had included uh, Jerusalem and Galilee, Judea, that, that area. And so there were a lot of Jews, of course, there under his purview, and it represented a third of his father's kingdom. And why a third? Well, he had two brothers, and so it was divvied up among his brothers, and so this is the portion that Herod uh, was given. Uh, this Herod divorced his first wife. Uh, she was a princess of another king, of a desert kingdom that adjoined his precinct where he had dominion. And uh, that wasn't a very politically wise thing to do, was it? Uh, having married a king's daughter that adjoined his kingdom and then to put her away. It didn't set well with that king, you can be sure of that. And uh, his name was King Aretas. He was a ruler, as I said, of a nearby province. But he put her away in order to marry his stepbrother's wife. And that plays a part in the story. And so we begin to see that even though uh, he was married to a woman who might have been a bit religious, and he certainly knew because of his domain and his political interest in the Jews, uh, he knew something of their religion. He knew something of their morality. He knew something of their scriptures. Uh, but that's all he had. Uh, didn't have much influence on his decision-making. We live in a world like that, brothers and sisters, there's a lot of people that know a little bit about the Bible, and a little, and have, and there's a lot of people. Uh, I assure you, there's a lot of people that have a little bit of religion, uh, as opposed to those that are fully immersed uh, in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ and the Word of God, and make it a way of life. And so, there's a lot of instruction, a lot of things to be gained as we think about the realities in this chapter. And so, Herod, in our text divorced as I said his first wife who was a daughter of a king who whose kingdom was adjoining his and that didn't set well with King Arteus and the animosity created would ultimately lead that king uh, to war against Herod and disturb his kingdom and ultimately and finally it resulted in Herod being banished into the area which is now roughly France called then Gaul and he was never heard from again. He makes no recorded, no, nothing recorded in the scriptures about him. He disappeared from the face of history. And so that in itself is an interesting fact. He built the city of Tiberias on the Sea of Galilee, however. And so that was to his credit. And it still exists today. In fact, we were there when we visited in the Holy Land some 30 years ago. We stayed in a hotel overlooking the Sea of Galilee. Bunny, I know you remember that. Judy, I suspect you do as well. And uh, that city was, was built originally by, by Herod. 
In Luke chapter 13, Jesus is warned that if he returns to Jerusalem, Herod would surely kill him. Jesus replies, go tell that fox, which tells you a little bit about how Jesus viewed him. Go tell that fox that today and tomorrow I cast out devils and do cures, and on the third day I will be perfected. In other words, he doesn't bother me. I have work to do and to finish of my father's business. And so again, we have a bit of a contrast there too. And so that's a backstory. That's a little bit of a bio about this man Herod that uh, has a large place in the gospel narrative of Jesus. And uh, he was there for the whole ministry and pretty much the whole life of Jesus. He was in power. And so let us begin now to look at the chapter in particular. I'm going to start with verses 1 and 2, and I want to highlight something that we see there. At that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard of the fame of Jesus and said unto his servants, This is John the Baptist. He is risen from the dead, and therefore mighty works do show forth themselves in him. For Herod had laid hold on John and bound him, and so forth. The haunting price of sin, even for an unbeliever. And that's what we see here, at least that's what I see here and want to talk about just for a minute. In Mark's Gospel, chapter 6 and verse 15, this same account, a little different light is shed on it, of the news of the miracles of Jesus and those that he was performing uh, in the area. Some were saying that this is Elijah come back to life, and others that it's a prophet, one of the prophets has come uh, alive again. But when Herod heard thereof, he said, oh no, it is John, whom I beheaded, he's risen from the dead. You see, what was going on and what was coming to his ears was haunting him. The guilt of his sin was haunting him. And so it is with sin, my brothers and my sisters, and there's an application here for all of us. Because sin has the same effect on the good, the bad, and the ugly. And uh, it is something that, that many uh, do not bother to consider when they make a choice to sin against the living God. To go against the will of God. To determine that we will not do what, what God's word tells us to do. We will sin against God, therefore. And there's always, as James said, sin when it is finished brings forth death. And that takes many forms as we've preached and taught before. But what we see before us here is this man, though he were a king, yet the choice that he made to put to death John the Baptist was haunting him. I think about things that the Bible talks about. In Proverbs chapter 28, for example, the Bible says the wicked fleeth when no man pursueth. I, that's, that's, that's pretty much what, John, uh, what uh, King Herod was doing. He sensed that uh, this was a vendetta. This was God that was, uh, was, was arranging this. He was feeling the presence of his guilt, and he was being haunted by this, th these miracles that Jesus was doing and thought that this had to be uh, uh, John the Baptist brought back to life, and uh, he was perplexed, as Mark records, by these things. David in Psalms 51 said, My sin is ever before me. Perhaps you have some sins like that. That's the way of sin. 
we can be forgiven, David was. But there were consequences to David's sin that never left him. And some of them trailed him till the day he drew his last breath. And so it is with sin. And again, this is a reminder here. This is a king. This is an unbelieving king. But sin is sin. And sin is dealt with by God, whether it's in the life of an unbeliever or a believer. And the sin defiles a conscience, whether it be a believer and an unbeliever. There are consequences. And that's something that every one of us, lost or saved alike, need to reckon with. It is folly. Folly to take sin lightly. And I'll tell you, there's, uh, for any of you that doubt this, uh, you, you young people, for example, haven't had much experience with these things, but you talk to some of the elderly members of this church and have a serious con conversation with them about the reality of these things that are revealed. Sin is not something to be taken lightly. It is in this world. But the Bible says fools make a mock of sin. Don't be foolish. Don't be foolish. The Bible also says in Numbers chapter 32, Behold, ye have sinned against the Lord, and be sure your sin shall find you out. There's no hiding from God. And so that's a serious thing we see here. You know, kings are not exempt. They might have the power of life and death over their subjects. But God has the trump card, and uh, your sin shall find you out. And so that's an application we see, and I think a practical one in these uh, sinful times when so little consideration is given about offending God and his law and his ways. But I'll tell you, our nation is paying a steep and dear and dreadful price for turning our backs in a wholesale way upon the God of the Bible and upon the Bible of our God. And so these things bear testimony when they come up in the Scripture. The next thing I want to look at in our text, I want to look at the decision-making process. Again, we're, the overall contrast uh, is, coming, is before us, and I don't want you to lose sight of that, even though we focus now on Herod and the kingdoms of, his, of this world operating within the realm of the kingdom of heaven, uh, that has been introduced by the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, and, uh, well, before that, uh, John the Baptist, his message was uh, the same, to make way, uh, make the way plain, the smooth path, open the way for the coming of the King of Kings, the Lord of Glory. But the decision-making process is very interesting to me here, and much is uh, said about it in the remainder of our text this morning. And so we see the decision-making process revealed in the kingdoms of this world. And nothing has changed much. When we read this and, and you think about the world that we live in, you think about the kingdoms of this world, you think about our own nation, you think about the White House, you think about the current administration, you think about the last administration, and what you're going to see if you give thought to this is that nothing has changed. As if the Bible says, there's nothing new under the sun. And what is revealed here to us in the life of Herod, in one single decision in the life of Herod, that cost the life of a man of God, snuffed out, represents the decision-making processes of the kingdoms of this world. That's why it's revealed. That's why it's recorded. 
And it is in stark contrast to the decision-making processes of the kingdom of heaven. And that's what God, I believe, intends for us to see and see and look at very carefully. And so the first thing, we see about four things here in decision-making process. It wasn't a snap decision that Herod made. There was a process in this decision. And a lot of decisions are like that. They're a process, and there are many factors that come to, to bear. And maybe you're not even aware of those things, and maybe God would have us to be more aware of the things that influence decisions that we make. And so let's look at those. The first is found in verse 5 and 6. Well, actually, I want to go up a little bit before that. Let's go to verse 3. For Herod had laid hold on John. That was several years earlier. We read about it in Matthew chapter 4, you may remember. Herod had laid hold on John and bound him and put him in prison for Herodias' sake. Now here you've got a monarch. You've got a king at least over a, a, a large swath of land and a, and a large number of people. And he's making a decision to, in, to imprison a man that God sent to the, for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. And why did he do that? What was the motive, motivation for it? Was it something political? Was it something uh, that, 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 that affected the, the well-being of the kingdom? No, not at all. It was for a woman's sake. Wow. For John said unto him, It is not lawful. It is not lawful for thee to have her. Now that ticked her off. And I'm not going to say much about this, but I, I, I was preaching on this a number of years back. And there was someone in the congregation that was in a similar situation. And they got mad as a hornet at me for even preaching that. Why? Because the word of God smote them in their heart. That's why. Smote them. That's what the word of God does. It smites us in our heart. It convicts us of our sin. But people don't like that. It makes people angry. It offends people. It often offends you. And it sometimes offends me. Because the natural man, the sinful man within each and every one of us, saved people, you still have an old and sinful nature, don't you? Is there anyone here that doesn't? No glorified saints of God here? Okay. Yeah, we all have one of those natures. And I can guarantee you that there are times when the Word of God doesn't set well with you, does it? And so, yes, we're looking at kingdom, a kingdom, a representative kingdom of this world. But I want you to be fully aware as we discuss these things that this trickles all the way down to you and me and decisions that we make. And the first part of this decision-making pro process that led to a disaster and horrible tragedy, humanly speaking, started with the Word of God going against the grain 
of someone in a position of influence. You know, there's a lot of people in high places in the United States that don't like what the Bible says about homosexuality, that don't like what the Bible says about abortion, that don't like what the Bible says about a woman's place in God's plan and purpose. You see, there's some people that are downright angry when you remind them that it is not lawful to adopt this lifestyle. You see what I'm talking about? And they're determined to get vengeance and to eradicate, just, just like Herod was and Herodias was. But the first step in this process, brothers and sisters, was the word of God didn't set well. And so when you, I want you to remember this, is when the word of God smarts, you think about Herod. You think about where it led him. That was the beginning of the decision-making process. The Word of God said, it's not lawful for you to do what you're doing. Well, who are you? I'm the king around here. I'll do what I want. You say, well, I'm not a king. Oh, yeah, you're a king. You're the king of your ship. You're the captain of your ship. You're the governor of your life. And sometimes the Word of God speaks to you like it does to me, and you don't like what it's saying about what you're doing. And so don't dismiss this as just talking about kings and kingdoms totally. It's, there's something here for you and I to think about, to be sure. So the decision-making process. You know, it reminds me of Ahab. You remember what Ahab said about the prophet? He said, I hate him. I hate him. And he even said why to Jehoshaphat. I hate him because he never has anything good to say to me. <laughs> you ever feel that way? Sometimes it seems like the preacher, you know, never has anything good to say to me. He's always stepping on my toes. He's always getting on my case. And you blame that on God because he's the one that tells us, you know, and guides us what to preach. But that's what he said in 2 Chronicles chapter 18, verse 7. The king of Israel, that was Ahab, said unto Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, Oh, there's one man by whom we, we may inquire of the Lord, but I hate him. For he never prophesied good unto me, but always evil. And Jehoshaphat said, Let the king not say so. Jehoshaphat had sense enough to know that that's a, that's a stupid thing to say about a man of God. And so it is. And so it is. Psalms 2 and verse 1, we have another example of this a long, long time ago. That is, when the Word of God gets in the way of the will of the king, the kings of this world. 
In Psalms chapter 2 and verse 1, you remember it starts out this way, why do the heathen rage? The heathen are what? The Hottentots out in the remote area of, uh, uh, of Australia? No. The nations of the world, all the nations apart from the nation of God's people, referred to as the heathen. Why do the heathen rage? The nations rage, and the people imagine a vain thing. That's what's happening in our country right now. We've got this nation is raging, isn't it? Boiling over, imagining vain things, empty things, meaningless things, things that have no support uh, from the scriptures or the word of God. The kings of the earth have set themselves, and so they have in our day. The kings have set themselves, and the rulers have taken counsel together, and so they have against the Lord and against his anointed. Who's that? Uh, the Lord Jesus. Saying, let us break their bands asunder. Let us take these chains off and get rid of them. We don't want... That's the age that we live in. You know, well, that's where Herod was 2,000 years ago. And so that's where we are. There's nothing new under the sun. You remember the parable of the talents taught by Jesus in Luke chapter 19? It said his citizens hated him and sent a message after him. We will not have this man to rule over us. That's what Herod was saying. That's what Herodias was saying. What are you saying? Be honest now. Be honest now. Is he your king? Do you obey his commands? Or sometimes does he command you to do something you're just unwilling to do? Beware where that leads. It doesn't lead to any good. And that's the text that we have here. That's where it ends. It didn't end in anything good. I assure you of that. And it never does. It never does. You see, there are some very practical lessons. We're comparing here the kingdoms of this world. The kingdoms of this world, we expect them to rebel against the king of kings. We know that they don't know. We know that the Holy Spirit hasn't opened their heart and their ears to receive the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We know that they don't have the spirit of the living God within. And so we should pity them and pray for them as Jesus instructs us to do. But how about us? Is he your king? Has he said to you that this is not lawful? what you're doing or this is something that I command that you should do you say well I don't want to that's basically what Herod was saying and I don't have to because I'm the king of Judea here I run things around here and I'll do what I want to do and that's where the decision started right there the word of God intersected with the will of the king and the word of God intersects against our will oftentimes doesn't it and don't we always capitulate to the king and his word and say, well, I don't think it'll work or I don't want to, but nevertheless, because thou art the king and I am the subject and you've been gracious and merciful and you died for me and you shed your blood and bore my sins on your own body on that tree. Because of all those reasons, Lord, 
It's not my will, but thine be done. You see, these are the kinds of lessons that are here for us as we study this king and where this decision-making process led him. But it all began with the word of God running contrary to his will. He wanted that woman. And by golly, he took him. Took her, rather. And John, as a good prophet, a faithful prophet, stood up even to the king. There's not many preachers today that will stand up to the President of the United States and tell him that he's wrong. But John the Baptist did. And he wasn't afraid to do it. And it cost him his life. That's what preachers are supposed to do. And that's what John did. The second influence is also one that's alive and well in our day. And it worked not isolated, but in concert. You see, already the word of God had smote the king. And it certainly smote his new wife that it was unlawful for him to have. But the plot thickens. Now, the second thing that we see is the power of pleasure. The power of pleasure. The Bible has something to say about that. As a matter of fact, in 2 Timothy chapter 3, you may remember, which begins, in the latter days, joyful times will come. And there'll be a great revival in the land, and everyone will be saved. You remember reading that in 2 Timothy chapter 3? You don't remember that. It's because it's not there, is it? A lot of people are preaching and talking like it's there, but it's not there. You won't read that. No, in the end times, that's not what we see. That's not what we're going to see in the end of the age. But the Bible says in 2 Timothy chapter 3, but we're going to see traitors. We're going to see heady people, that is, proud people, uh, high-minded Lovers of pleasure more than lovers of God. You see, there's nothing wrong with a little pleasure. God intended that his people enjoy some pleasures, lawful pleasures, holy pleasures, sanctioned pleasures, pleasures that don't violate the word of God and the principles of God and morality, but in the latter days, the Bible says that there are going to be a lot of people that love pleasure way more than they love God. And so when pleasure comes along and there's a decision that has to be made, I'm going to the stadium. I'm not going to the house of God. I'm going to the beach. I'm not going to the house of God. I'm going to do this or that. I'm not going to the house of God. You see, it brings it down to practical terms. Lovers of pleasure more than lovers of God. And so let's see the influence of that in this decision-making. We already have one item. The Word of God was probing around, saying that decision that you uh, have made is wrong. It is not lawful. That irked the king and his wife, and they uh, didn't like it one bit. And uh, we're going to take some vengeance on that. And uh, next, uh, however, we come down the verses 5 through 7. We see the influence of pleasure. When Herod, in verse 5, when he would have put John to death, he feared the multitude because they counted him as a prophet. But 
when Herod's birthday was kept, the daughter of Herodias, some suggest that her name was Salome, danced before them. I wonder what kind of dance that was. And it pleased Herod. Whereupon, whereupon the dance, whereupon he was pleased by what he saw, whereupon he promised with an oath. Now here's the king. His decision to put a man to death was being based upon something that a woman did in his presence. The pleasure that he received from watching her dance. Whereupon he promised with an oath to give her whatsoever she would ask. Decision making. How many of your decisions to go against the word of God are made based upon a pleasure that you'd rather entertain. You see, that's a practical application. We live in a time, and the Bible predicted it would come, when men would be lovers of pleasure more. That's the key word. More than lovers of God. In other words, it would be a common thing for men and women, even who name the name of God, to choose a pleasure rather than to choose to obey the living God, to worship the living God, to submit to the living God. And that's so in our day, and it's so in our lives, and you know it. And so let's get the application, because that's the way of the kingdoms of this world. It's not the way of the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of God. This is the contrast that Jesus, who is the King of kings and Lord of lords, who is our Savior, would have us to see as he teaches us about the kingdom of heaven. And he's done a lot of teaching. And he's made it very clear that the ways and the rules and the laws and the behavior and the citizenry of the kingdom of heaven is very, very different and very, very distinct from the kingdoms of this world, hasn't he? You have heard it said, Thou shalt love those that love you and hate those that hate you. But I say unto you, love your enemies. That's one example of the vast difference between, and we were there a number of weeks ago, months ago now perhaps, but you get the idea just as a reminder. And so the power of pleasure and the factor that that pleasure made in the king's heart. You say, well, what of that? And again, we must make this practical. And we'd be foolish to imagine that this pleasure principle has no influence on us. You think about that. For us to have any benefit, you think about that. Otherwise, it'll be wasted on us. All right, that's the second thing, the power of pleasure. Entered into this decision. You see, it was a complex decision. It didn't have just one factor. And there's a couple of more. Let's look at verse 8. There was also a plot. There was also a scheme. So this is a third factor. I wonder if Herod knew about it. I doubt it. It was a subterfuge. It was something that his wife, that it was unlawful for him to have, 
and the daughter that did the dirty dancing, they knew about it. They were in on it, but the king didn't know anything about it. And brothers and sisters, I want you to know this truth to make an application. There are plots and schemes against the people of God in this world by the God of this world and the people in control of this world. This is, he, the, the, the Satan is the prince of the power of the air. He is the God of this world, as you well know, or certainly should. And we are dealing with principalities and powers and spiritual wickedness in high places. And yet we act as if that's not true. And they are all the time scheming and plotting to influence your decisions. And they're doing a pretty good job of it. All you got to do is look around. So what is the plot here? Well, you saw it, of course. But when Herod's birthday was kept, the daughter of Herodias danced before them and pleased Herod. Whereupon he promised with an oath to give her whatsoever she would ask. Oh my, the power of pleasure. How foolish for a king to make a statement like that. And she being before instructed of her mother, there's the plot. She reviewed this. She knew what the king would do under the influence of pleasure and wine, no doubt, and all that was going on in that birthday party. Yeah, it made me think about Job, how he prayed for his family when they were celebrating birthdays, that they would not sin against God. What a wise man he was. So no telling what all was going on, but she knew her man. And she knew how to work her man. And so she crafted a plot to control his decision. When you dance like that in front of him, I guarantee you, honey, he'll offer you the kingdom. And so he did. And when he does, don't take the kingdom. Ask for John the Baptist's head. Because that wretch said it was not, not lawful for me to be married to Herod. And I hate him for that. Literary license. But I have no doubt that's exactly what she thought. And so, a plot. And there's a lot of plots that are designed to control your decisions against the clear teaching of the Word of God. Be careful. Don't act like it ain't so. Understand that there are some wicked people plotting wicked things to get you to turn against the clear teaching of your God and His Word. You see, these things are written for our learning. That's why they're revealed in such gory detail. God wants us to understand the decision-making processes in the kingdoms of this world. This is the way the world operates. It's the way the world has always operated apart from God. But it is not and it has no place in determining the decisions of the, of, of the citizens of the kingdom of heaven. And so, let us beware. And let us look and let us learn. And the final thing, the straw that broke the camel's back, without which this would have never worked. It didn't have to be this way. There needed to be a final element. Because when she said, I want the head of John the Baptist, 
that struck fear into the heart of Herod. He knew that wasn't right. He knew, didn't he, that the people believed him to be a prophet. He knew that this would be a terrible thing to do. He knew that. But he did it anyway. Why? The Bible tells us. Perhaps the one thing that we ought to fear most in our sinful nature. It's the one thing that the Bible says that God hates. The Bible has a lot to say about it. And I think sometimes we act like it ain't so for us. What was that one thing? Pride. 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 Pride goeth before destruction, the Bible says. Pride goeth before a fall, the Bible says. When pride cometh, the Bible says, then cometh shame. Only by pride cometh contention. Pride goeth before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. A man's pride shall bring him low. The Bible says all of these things and much more about pride to warn us, to warn us, to warn us. And sometimes we don't even recognize it when it rears its ugly head in us. Ain't that so? Let's see it. And the king was sorry that she asked that. In other words, he knew this was not good. He wished he had never opened his mouth and said, whatever you want, I'll give it to you. He knew he'd made a bad mistake. He was sorry when he heard what her request was. I'm sure in his mind, I wish you to just ask for the kingdom. Not the head of this good man. But, but, that's, there's a the but. And the king was sorry, verse 9. Nevertheless, for the oath's sake, and them which sat with him at meat, in other words, there were a lot of witnesses. So his reputation was on the line. His manhood was on the line. You've made this commitment. Are you going to keep it? Or are you going to wimp out, King Herod? He was sorry. But his pride would not let him back down now. And so those four things led to this decision, this fateful decision that put to death the man that God sent. There was a man sent from God. His name was John. And brothers and sisters, that same process leads to the putting to death of the influence of the Holy Spirit in your life sometimes and mine. 
you might say that that same decision-making process, making decisions for all the wrong reasons, kills the Lord Jesus, in a sense, from controlling your decision. Now, when we see it like that, which I believe is the way the Lord would have us see it, make it practical, it'll help us if we'll yield to what the Lord is teaching us. I tell you, we, there's some decisions that you have made. There's some decisions that I have made. With these processes, the processes of the world influencing my decision, and they have never, never resulted in a result that glorifies God, ever. So, let us look and learn. What we've looked at today, and if we had two or three hours to preach, we could do the whole chapter, and that way you'd have the whole picture. Kind of hate to have to end on this note, but maybe the Lord is pleased for us to end on this sober note today, because we live in a day, in an age, when more and more decisions are being made just this way, just on this, these, these bases. And we've got a government that's being run the same kind of way right now. And there are, there are plots and schemes to control the behavior of the people of God. And pride is always present in us, always. Be wary of him. And pleasure is the order of the day. And the world is full of people who are lovers of pleasure more. That's the key word, more than lovers of God. But remember this, this is how the kingdoms of darkness under the influence of Satan, this is how they make their decisions. It's no way for the child of God to make a decision. May God help us, is my prayer, in these dark times, in these perilous times, to make decisions in keeping with citizens of the kingdom of heaven. May the Lord help us. Let's go to the